Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Most people know East Timor for its tragic recent history, the Indonesian invasion in 1975, the loss of life of perhaps a third of its population during the occupation, and the violent events leading up to the country's independence in 2002. Today, East Timor is a predominantly Catholic country, but In 1900, only around 7% of the population was Christian. The rest were what anthropologists refer to as animists. The decline of animism in East Timor is a story that's never been told until now. Today, I'm talking to Chris Shepard, who's just published a fascinating and provocative book titled Haunted Houses and Ghostly Encounters, Ethnography and Animism in East Timor. The book tells the story of how Portuguese military commanders, colonial administrators, Catholic missionaries, And yes, even ethnographers combined to carry out an assault on the animist beliefs of the Timorese. But Timorese animism responded in inventive ways. Today I'll be talking to its author, Chris Shepard, who is an independent researcher affiliated with the Department of Anthropology at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show and congratulations on your book. Thank you, Patrick. Before we get on to discussing the book itself, could I just start off by asking you to tell us about how you first became personally interested in Southeast Asia, perhaps East Timor in particular, and the subject of animism? Going back about 20 years, I did my PhD on development and Indigenous knowledge in Peru. I spent a couple of years there doing ethnography, and that doctorate was in science and technology studies. And when I finished the doctorate, East Timor was beginning to transition to independence. And as you just said before, it wasn't in a, in a very good way. There was no state. The infrastructure was in tatters and the people were quite traumatised after 25 years of Indonesian occupation. And at that time, the ideology of development came to define the future of Timor And there was really an invasion of a whole spectrum of international development organisations going into Timor, like the UN, mainly to set up the state, and the World Bank and bilateral agencies from a range of different countries and tons of international NGOs. And then a lot of national NGOs started being set up as well. So it struck me as a great research topic 
And eventually I found funding for it and took up a postdoc in anthropology at the Australian National University. And then I went on to East Timor for almost two years. Despite that time in Timor, animism was something I couldn't really get my head around very well. And I was interested in, in anthropology, but I also found that literature confusing. Gradually, I became more interested in the history of Timor under the Portuguese, and especially the colonial ethnography and the topic of animism. And the colonial ethnography was something I found more accessible than the more recent anthropology. And it would have been about four years ago that I was in Peru and I was stuck there waiting to get access to a mining site, which I was intending to research. And I was waiting for about three months and that's when I started writing Haunted Houses. Can you give us a broad overview of what your book is about? Haunted Houses is divided into two parts. Part one has uh, six chapters. It's called Colonial Ethnography, 1860 to 1945. And part two has four chapters. That's professional anthropology. And that goes from the post-war until 1975. So there's 10 chapters uh, in total. And each chapter is a narrative of one particular ethnographer or field anthropologist based on the books and articles of those ethnographers. And some of those books are in Portuguese and some are in English. So in a sense, Haunted Houses is a book about books, but there's not much textual analysis. There's some, but not too much. It's more about their experiences with animism and about the social, political and economic context in which their writing took place over the course of a 100 years. Part one, the ethnography of colonial officials. It's worth pointing out that their ethnography was closely related to the position that they held. Chapter one is called The Governor, and that refers to Governor Afonso de Castro, who arrived in Timor in the 1860s and stayed for a few years. Chapter two, the naturalist, a Scottish explorer, Henry Forbes, who was in Timor in the 1880s. And this Henry Forbes is an exception in part one because he wasn't exactly a colonial official. He was an explorer from Scotland, but he did have a colonial mindset. Uh, chapter three, the magistrate, Alberto Osorio de Castro, who was in Dili from 1909 to 1910. Chapter 4, the captain, a military commander, who spent a quarter of a century in Timor from 1909 to 1935. Chapter 5, the administrator, Armando Pinto Correa, who was the administrator of Balcao for six years from 1928 to 1934. In Chapter 6, the missionary, uh, not quite a colonial official, but not far from it. His name was Father Abilio José Fernández, and he was in Timor from 1914 to 1938, and he eventually became the head of the missions, the Catholic mission. 
Each ethnographer is distinctive for his time, place, and vocation, and their ethnographies re reflected their particular interests, which usually concerned everyday governance, such as making the colony productive, particularly in terms of plantations, getting the indigenous population to work, taxing them, Christianizing them, relocating them, and so on. So the, the general idea with ethnography was that you had to know them in order to rule them. So ethnography was instrumental to the civilizing mission. So the strategic definition of anonism as superstition and ranking it lower than Catholicism and lower than science was also important to that. You're right that the Portuguese were relative latecomers to the to the business of studying the peoples of their colonies. Why, why was this? And can you say how Portuguese anthropology was similar to or different from the anthropological traditions of the French, the British and the Americans, which you, know, you also discuss in the book? The Portuguese always seemed to be on the back foot and they did come late to ethnography, but they read ethnographies from those various countries that you mentioned and they were particularly interested in what the Dutch were doing next door in the Dutch East Indies. And in a way, they mimicked the ethnography of other European states. You open the book with a story about a Portuguese colonial administrator who orders the local Timorese to kill a crocodile whom they regard as a totem, that, that is an animist spirit. And the story uh, introduces one of the, the central arguments of your book, that is, Whereas the reader might feel at first glance that this story represents the sort of the suppression of animism by Western colonial rule, you kind of turn it on its head by suggesting that the actions of the local Timorese in fact encompassed the Portuguese administrator into what you call their animist ontology. So the administrator is structurally equivalent to a, to a powerful spirit that needed to be propitiated. Can you explain to the listener what you meant by this particular anecdote? I use the anecdote to illustrate firstly the, the fundamental difference between naturalism and animism. Naturalism is the founding ontology of science, which during the Enlightenment period created a number of binaries, such as nature, society, non-human, human, body, and mind. So these things were separated out from each other. And you can look at these binaries as being the ontological operating system for the scientific method. Nature is separated from the human world. And through scientific method, we derive objective knowledge about nature. So in other words, animals will be seen in biological terms or anatomical terms or taxonomic terms, whereas animism is the mirror opposite. In animism, there's a slippage between humans and animals, persons and plants. So animism has the capacity, unlike science, to confer personhood upon animals and plants. And that's what we generally understand as anthropomorphism. Animals, plants, rocks, rivers, under animism can have feelings, they can have a will, and they can be agents. They're animated by spirits, or they are spirits, and they are often related to people and have power over people's lives. So Korea's crocodile was clearly not Timor's crocodile. So that leads me into the book's argument, as you just outlined. So one possible line of interpretation, as you mentioned, was that 
through the colonial European encounter with the Timorese, animism was slowly eroded. And I don't want to dismiss that line of interpretation completely, but I suggest that the relationship that the Timorese have had with powerful spirits was projected onto Europeans, in which case the powerful crocodile, uh, the totem crocodile, known as Avo Leiliba, or grandfather, can be seen as a powerful gift to a powerful administrator in order to appease, or I think you use the word propitiate, the administrator. So Timur's ritual, which was a negotiation with spirits, was transferred onto ceremony, which is effectively a negotiation with colonial others, and especially powerful others such as governors, administrators, military men, and so on. And this is what I call the homology argument in transformative animism. It's the structural projection of spirits onto outsiders. And it happened fundamentally because spirits and outsiders both represented danger. When you were developing this concept of transformative animism, you also introduced three other concepts of animism, hyperanimism, defensive animism, and assisted animism. And these these terms you use to describe the way that the Portuguese are reacting to, I guess, the intrusions of, of uh, colonial rule. Can you say how these subcategories help us understand the interaction between the Portuguese colonial administrators and the Timorese? These three concepts are pretty simple. Hyperanimism happened when Europeans broke taboo or forced the Timorese to break taboo themselves. Like, for example, they might have asked the or ordered the Timorese to excavate out around a, a spring to make way for an irrigation channel. Or they might have asked them to clear, clear a sacred forest. When the Timorese did this, they feared the retribution of spirits and then entered into a heightened state of alarm or anxiety and tended to make a flurry of sacrifices to make sure that the spirits wouldn't do anything too rash. Assisted animism was when the Timorese enrolled Europeans to help them protect or affirm or record their animism. And often that took place in the context of acculturation where the Timorese feared that their traditions would be forgotten and that their children would no longer know what animism was. So uh, Shepard Foreman, I write about him in Chapter 8, is a case in point. He turned up one day with an illustrated text called the Haggadah, which depicted the Jewish exodus from Egypt. And the elders could identify with the images because the, the, the Jews were in bare feet and and. They were dressed in a certain way and they identified with them and they wanted such a book about the Makassai, about themselves, again, so they could pass it on to their children. Shepard Foreman was enrolled to effectively write a book for them and to take the photos for the book. That's assisted animism. And defensive animism is almost the opposite of assisted animism. Defensive animism was when the Timorese felt that their sacred items or their traditions were under threat 
from Europeans or missionaries. So, in fact, missionaries were in the habit of burning sacred houses and taking the sacra out of the houses and burning those as well. And often the Timorese resorted to hiding the sacra and hiding the whereabouts of the sacred houses, particularly from missionaries, but also anyone who they perceived was a threat. And in the case of David Hicks, a post-war anthropologist who I write about in Chapter 7, this is what happened. They hid from him the whereabouts of their sacred house at his field site, which is actually something he found out about in the post-colonial period about 30 years later when he revisited those informants. In one part of the book, you discuss how Portuguese colonial development policies uh, affected Timorese animist beliefs. For example, after the, the Portuguese pacification campaigns of the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, destroyed you know, Timorese resistance to Portuguese rule, uh, the forests began to be cleared for coffee cultivation. But this required a kind of, I think you call it a desacralization of, of the land. Can you say a little bit more about this, this period? How did the indigenous Timorese respond to this policy? The Portuguese were uh, fairly keen on plantation, plantation agriculture in order to, order to make money for the bankrupt colony. And that started in the 1800s. But for a long time, for about a century, the chiefs controlled where the plantations went and at times, they even controlled the, the coffee trade. But during and after pacification, all that changed. The colonial authorities started putting plantations into sacred forests. And sacred land was particularly good for coffee, coconut and tea, cacao and other crops. So huge forests were cleared and turned over to plantations. And by about 1930... Most of those forests had disappeared and there were just small patches of lulic or sacred land remaining. So the question is whether that happened by force or by transformative animism. You often get the impression from the archive that it was done by force, particularly under Governor Celestino da Silva, who was a turn-of-century governor. However, later, uh, there's some good testimony that shows that it happened under conditions of transformative animism. And one area is a case in point called Mundo Perdido, a big mountainous area in the south of the country, which was covered in sacred forest. And Governor Filomeno de Camara, he went there in 1915 and he wanted to turn the whole lot over to coffee. The whole forest was sacred. So Timur's ritual masters had to begin a ritual in order to get the consent of the resident spirits, you know, by making sacrifices and so on. But you see from the testimony that the occasion was also intensely ceremonial. The governor was there with his entourage and there was a kind of fusion of ritual with spirits and ceremony with the Portuguese. They came together. So as in ritual, in ceremony as well, there were feasts, there was dancing, there were speeches and sacrifices. And the governor himself was gifted a sacred gun, probably, probably the most precious sacred item that the people of Mundo Perdido possessed. 
And in a sense, the Timorese were doing a double deal with spirits and colonials. And this was historic because it's, it came in the early post-pacification period. And it could have been the first time that Timorese really had to negotiate this way. And to do it, they invented ceremony. Look, it's another example of how we see or you you, you depict uh, the Portuguese as as active sort of players in the, in the colonial game, if as it were, rather than sort of passive victims of of colonial rule. So it's sort of when I was reading it, it seemed to me that it was sort of going against a post colonial tendency to depict you know, indigenous peoples as passive kind of objects of colonial policy. Was that a conscious intention that you had when you were writing the book, or it just sort of came out that way? I think it was partly conscious, and that's the way it came out. That's where the data led me. So the Timorese definitely were dominated, yet they had a fair bit of elbow room. They were forced to work, for example, but they were also strategically lazy. There were lots of different forms of passive resistance. They paid tax, but they also found ways to avoid paying tax as well, for example, by hiding their taxable livestock. The Timorese were also constantly changing their names, which confused census takers and impeded their tax collection. So they were disobeying rules all the time. On the positive side, many Timorese became Portugalized or civilized, so to speak, and they found jobs within the administration, in the church, as secretaries, nurses, teachers, and priests. So there were countless things going on, which indicated that, yes, the Timorese did have a fair bit of uh, agency in the colonial process. At this point, we'll pause briefly for sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about your uh, critique of the ethnography of East Timor. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Chris Shepherd about his new book, Haunted Houses and Ghostly Encounters, Ethnography and Animism in East Timor. Besides being a story of the history of animism in East Timor, your book is also at times uh, a trenchant critique of the ethnography of, of, of Southeast Asia, I'd, I'd say, uh, more generally. So I'd like to uh, discuss some of the areas of uh, your critique Often we draw a distinction between the anthropologists of the colonial era and the professional ethnographers of the post-World War II era. But you claim to show that uh, they have more in common than we might think. How so? In one respect, they have more in common because from the Timorese point of view, they were all foreigners. They were all people from across the sea. And I don't think the Timorese differentiated so much between colonials and anthropologists, although the anthropologists were often seen as wanderers without kin, so they weren't fixed within the colonial administration as the colonial ethnographers were. 
Although Margaret King is an exception there. She was an anthropologist, but she went travelling around with governors and administrators. So she was uh, strongly identified with the administration. One feature of the ethnography in the post-war period that you are critical of is the search for the cultural essence of Timor's Indigenous peoples. And this search for cultural essence meant that, I think in your words, the historical, even contemporary violence associated with Portuguese rule lay mainly outside the scope of their bounded ethnographic vision. So it's it's as though your book brings history back into the analysis of animism. Why was this history, the colonial history associated with it, uh, left out? So I think it was left out partly because of the compartmentalisation of the disciplines. So by the post, post-war period, ethnography was separated out from culture. They were seen as two distinct things, and that also led to a a lesser interest in the Portuguese literature on the subject. So colonial ethnographers had always been historians and their ethnography and their history was always mixed up, whereas the post-war professional anthropologists were more or less exclusively concentrated on their culture. They tended to overlook acculturation and other kinds of influences, such as the Catholic Church and the general intrusion of colonialism into the everyday life of the Timorese, which was pretty strong in some places and evidently not so strong in other places. You talk about the way that some ethnographers in their studies of Timorese cultural life and animism in particular in a way, intervened directly in uh, certain animistic rituals and in doing so affected the way that animism was represented in their work. Can you maybe say something about how the relationship between ethnographers and how we understand uh, animism played out? Professional anthropologists were intervening just through their presence. Just by being there, they were, in a sense, intervening in subtle ways, but often in less subtle ways. For instance, in the case of Shepard Foreman, who I mentioned earlier, he needed access to the names of the dead in order to write the book that the Makasai people had asked him to write. So a special ritual had to be convened to open the door, so to speak, to open the door to be able to say the names. Uh, Opening the door was a metaphor they used for giving access, being able to tell people things that were otherwise taboo to speak. So on account of Shepherd Foreman, a ritual was held. And then later, a few months later, when it was thought that he already knew enough, there was another ritual to close the door. And at that point, Shepherd Foreman accidentally sat on the sacred stone of the first Makasai ancestor to come down from the mountain. All the elders who were sitting around him suddenly jumped up and started screaming. And yeah, it was evidently taboo to sit on that stone and the consequences could be severe. So for a while, that seemed to be forgotten. And a few weeks later, a snake appeared in Shepherd Foreman's hut. And we only find out later that this was 
a sacred snake that had likely come to give Shepherd Foreman a message about his prime mistake of sitting on the sacred stone. But Shepherd Foreman was freaking out and killed the sacred snake. And that again caused a big commotion. A few weeks later, or perhaps a month later, uh, there happened to be a big fire that swept through the village and burnt just about everything. And at that point, people remembered, oh yeah, Shepherd Foreman had sat on the sacred stone. Shepherd Foreman had killed the messenger snake. And so he was then blamed for the fire, even though he wasn't the direct cause of the fire. And Shepherd Foreman was sooner or later driven out of the village. A, a sort of related point that you discuss, again, more in the latter part of the book, is the relationship between the ethnographer and the native informants. And you describe it as, a, as an exchange relationship and that this also affected the way that animism was both experienced and written about. How so? It was always an exchange between ethnographers, or particularly professional ethnographers, and the local people, an exchange with informants. And even at the most most basic level, there was the Timorese, well, the ethnographers, of course, wanted data and information, but the Timorese were very curious about who these ethnographers were, why they had come. They were curious about their dress and their looks, and they may have been even quite infatuated by them. But that kind of exchange, which involved recognising what the other wanted, permeates all research in anthropology, I think. For instance, David Hicks was in the habit of giving wine to his informants to make them more chatty. A related aspect of this exchange relationship that you discuss, particularly in the the final chapter, is a phenomenon that you you give the term field erotics, that is the role that sexual desire and sexual attraction between ethnographer and informant play in ethnographic fieldwork. I don't think many anthropologists have written about this, I guess due to its sensitivity, and I think you make the point that there's a, partly because of this uh, desire to, that you know, social scientists need to, to present themselves as, chaste and scientific. Can you say a little bit more about this phenomenon of field erotics? Field sites are often sexually charged and this can even affect the content and the data that the anthropologist extracts. So in Chapter 10, I write write about Elizabeth Traub who had two male informants and both of them were in love with her. Uh, She was in love with one of them, at least, maybe with both. And the two men were vying for her attention. And they spent one year together. Uh, She paid them $40 a month, I think. And they went on this constant circuit from one sacred site to another sacred site, from one ritual to another ritual. And uh, in Elizabeth Traub's words, they ate together, they slept together, they did everything together. It took one year for Elizabeth Traub to get the Mumbai creation myth out of these two men. My question was, well, why did it take one year to get this creation myth when it took David Hicks, for example, 10 minutes to get his creation myth from the, from the Tetum? 
So my suggestion is that the two men drip-fed Elizabeth Traub the myth and kept making stuff up as they went along to keep her by their side, to keep her interested. So I think this sexually transmitted myth, as I call it, must be the longest and most twisted and convoluted in the history of anthropology. And by saying that, I don't want to dismiss it as being inauthentic. It's totally authentic because it's true to the sexual dynamics of the encounter between her and her informants. Another issue that you discuss in the latter part of the book is the rise of cultural relativism amongst anthropologists after World War II, which replaced the earlier colonial racially based anthropology and the evolutionary paradigm into which it tended to situate the peoples they studied. But you're quite critical of anthropologists' claims of cultural relativism. Why is that? Shouldn't we be glad that we've left behind the old you know, racist assumptions and that we can appreciate cultural difference on its own terms? Yeah, in a sense, I think we should be glad that we've done that, gotten rid of those old racialist assumptions and we've stopped visibly ranking cultures in the way that we used to. I think cultural relativism also has problems. And one was a kind of empirical problem that arises in the field that it made ethnographers underestimate the degree of acculturation. So they tended to go chasing pure culture within their ethno-linguistic context. But aside from that, I think it also led them to miss some of the subtleties of the cross-cultural encounter. Not totally, because there's some fairly interesting reflexivity in the work of the ethnographers that I write about. But they tended to see things coming in from the outside as a disturbance. So, for example, they were very interested in ritual authority and rituals, but they weren't very interested in what they construed as political authority. Perhaps most controversially in your book, you're critical of the silence of quite a number of anthropologists who worked on East Timor following the Indonesian invasion and occupation in 1975. And this raises a you know a fundamental ethical issue which goes beyond just anthropologists in East Timor but really concerns all foreign researchers who work on Southeast Asia who wish to have continued access to field sites and people and and most importantly data which I think you say in the book is the currency of you know academic uh, research where do you stand on this issue I could never quite make up my mind where I stood on that issue it was a difficult one and I talked to various people about it and who were directly involved and some tended to deny that there was any kind of censorship in order to keep field sites open or to maintain good relationships with Indonesia or with universities or whatever. I can imagine if I'd been around at the time an anthropologist of East Timor and I'd wanted to do further research in Flores as David Hicks did, I would perhaps just be a little bit quieter than I otherwise would have been. And maybe I wouldn't have had a major problem with it. I'm not sure how I would have reacted. But I think with, for example, with James Fox's book, The Flow of Life, which was published in 1980, so five full years after the Indonesian invasion, and there's five articles on Portuguese Timor in that book. It's an edited volume. 
yeah, I find it a bit much that there was no mention whatsoever at any point in the book of the Indonesian invasion, not one single word. To me, in a way, that's a pity, but I expect that extended to the whole of anthropology of this, the Australian National Uni- University and probably elsewhere as well. But I haven't really looked further into how far that silencing went and whether it was just a tacit understanding that it was better not to say anything or better not to say too much or whether it was more institutionalised than that, I don't know. Coming back to the the argument of the book, you, in the conclusion, make a very intriguing point that uh, you say narrative is a better methodology than science as a way of understanding animism. Can you explain what you mean by this? Narrative for me is something enjoyable. You have people, you have characters, you have feelings, drama, aesthetics, plots, chronology and endings. And science has very little of that. I think narrative is a great way to illustrate theory and it seems to work quite well in my book. And even then the theory can be quite story-like. So in Haunted Houses, I wanted to have as much story as possible. I wanted, wanted it to be as enjoyable as possible. At least I enjoyed writing it. You said at the beginning of the interview that uh, you, your background is in science. This book is a work of anthropology, but there's a strong historical dimension to it. Do you see yourself, uh, those, three, those three disciplines in your, in, as a scholar, which one do you think dominates or are they equally balanced? You mean science, technology, studies, and anthropology, and history. Oh, gee, well, yeah, I think I'm really tending towards history at the moment. History is my favourite. Science and technology studies. Well, my first book was framed by science and technology studies, and I don't think very many people understand that language. So there was a deliberate move away from that. Anthropology, I like the history of anthropology, but I actually don't like anthropology itself all that much. Of course, the anthropology of development is something else again, which I continue to be interested in. We have a a traditional question that we ask interviewees. Would you be able to tell us whether you're working on a new project and what that project is? Haunted Houses is crying out for a second volume on ethnography and animism in the post-colonial period. So that's one thing that certainly interests me. I'm also working on something on coffee. I'm starting to look at the possibilities for historical fiction as another way of presenting the history of Timor. Look forward to uh, the outcomes of those projects. Chris Shepard, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Haunted Houses and Ghostly Encounters, Ethnography and Animism in East Timor. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy listening to uh, Megan Thomas talk about her book, Orientalists, Propagandists and Illustrados, Filipino Scholarship and the End of Spanish Colonialism, or to Carolina Bejarano about her book, Decolonizing Ethnography, Undocumented Immigrants and New Directions in Social Science. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 
And finally, uh, listeners to this episode will have noticed that we have a new theme music to open and close the program. It's a recording of a three-string guitar from northeastern Thailand known as The Pin. It was recorded by Benjamin Talsig for his recent book, Bangkok is Ringing, Sound, Protest and Restraint, published by Oxford University Press last year. We'd like to sincerely thank Ben for permitting us to use his recording as the new theme for new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And you can check out my interview with Ben earlier this year on the new book in Southeast Asian Studies website.